0: And we continue looking at the whole issue of six functions of church. We've been talking about prayer quite a while. And this is the last one in the series on prayer that I want to do. We've done uh, worship, corporate worship. We've done prayer. These are two of the functions of a church. Other functions are fellowship, ministry of the word, encounters with the Holy Spirit, and acts of service or engagement and mission all of these really you can't divide them into categories they kind of intersect with each other and we're going to find that to be true here in the life of uh, Jacob as we look in his life at what I would call a prayer that utterly transformed his life and really transformed history in some ways As we look into the life of Jacob, uh, some of you are familiar with his story. Some are not. I'll make allusions to that. But we catch him in adult life. We catch him after 20 years of working for his uncle Laban. It's been hard work. He's done the work of shepherding. He's done the herding of cattle. He's, uh, He's done it in a nomadic way where they go from place to place. He's been up all night. He's exposed to cold. He's exposed to the elements. They live in tents. It's not an easy way of life. They have to search for water. They have to search for grassland. But in the process, he actually has prospered tremendously. Actually, too tremendously because he had four wives along with 13 children. But anyhow, he prospered in a remarkable way. And he also had many herds, which he managed in some way to earn from Laban, and some people would say in a way that wasn't entirely honest. After 20 years with his uncle Laban, and we're going to look a little bit deeper into his earlier background shortly, but after 20 years with his uncle Laban, the Lord spoke to his heart and told him to move. It's a a time of transition For you, Jacob. I want you to go back to your homeland, back to where you started. And as we look at Jacob, and as he moves away, and as he makes a covenant with Laban, uh, and Laban lets them go, what we see, it appears that really, in some sense, Jacob has really made it. He's uh, become very wealthy, he has a large family. He's a very substantial person. Uh, Rabbi Ari Khan, uh, doing a kind of a, looking at, the, uh, at a kind of a Jewish interpretation of this passage, says, "The context, context is fascinating. Jacob has finally succeeded financially. The blessing meant for Esau, which he had taken from him, comes to fruition. Jacob has, quote, "made it." He has completed a metamorphosis from being a man of the tent to becoming a successful entrepreneur. Yet, Jacob struggles with his success. It was one thing to take the blessings destined for Esau. It's quite another to live with the results of those blessings. As Jacob prepares to meet his brother, he looks at the wealth he has accumulated, and he's worried. I want to look at that a little bit. We look at Jacob and someone might say, boy, he really does have it made. But my question would be, does he really? Has there really been a transformation in Jacob's life that has made him a new creature? Or has he just prospered and nothing more? Even through whether honest or dishonest means, whether through hard work or whether through deceiving his uncle, and his brother. What has happened to Jacob? Has he really made it? Has there been a transformation? Or is it only something that is entirely outward and therefore potentially deceptive because we don't know what's in his heart? Now here's the story. When Rebecca, Jacob's mother, Isaac's wife, was pregnant, she had twins. And she felt them struggling in her womb. And she pondered over this. She says, what, is this? what does this mean? And the Lord spoke to her prophetically. And the prophecy of the Lord was, there are not just two children in your womb, there are two nations in your womb. We're dealing here in this message today with the stuff of destiny, with the stuff of history, with the stuff that affects us right down to the day in which we live, that we see played out in the very Middle East that we look at today. She said, two nations are struggling in your room. They will be divided out. One will be stronger than the other. The elder will serve the younger. It was a prophetic destiny that Jacob had before he was ever even born. But when he was born, his brother Esau, the older twin, came out first and they saw that Jacob grasped his heel. And as he grasped his heel, they gave him the name Jacob. And the name Jacob means usurper. It can also mean deceiver. It can mean conniver. It can be somebody whose dealings aren't entirely upright or honest. A manipulative Dishonest person, he steals his brother's birthright, his blessing. Esau comes in famished and he makes a deal with him, give me your birthright. And Esau, who is later called a profane man, doesn't consider what is his or what God has given him and just kind of gives it away. He's a profane person. He doesn't understand holy things or worthwhile things or worthy things. However, it doesn't end there. Rebekah has a kind of a favoritism for Jacob and Isaac favors Esau, the older son. And so it doesn't just end with Jacob kind of talking Esau into voluntarily giving up his blessing. He actually steals it with his mother's help by deceiving his father, by dressing up as his brother when his father is old and blind and near death and it's time for him. To bless the children and essentially to pronounce what their inheritance will be. Now, the thing about this blessing—it's not just a physical inheritance that Jacob is that uh, Isaac is passing on to Jacob and Esau. It's also a spiritual inheritance, and Isaac is an unwitting pawn, not only in Jacob's deception, but in God's great. transformative use even of the sin the deceptive sin of Jacob it's amazing what God uses who God uses and how God uses there's nothing good about evil there's nothing good about sin but even God even God takes what is evil and turns it for righteousness sake He turns it. And I think that's good news. I think that's good news. Because that gives hope to you and to me. So Jacob, the usurper, disguises himself and lies to his father. Is this Esau? Yes, I'm Esau. I don't know. Maybe you don't think his actions were sinful. My understanding is lying is a sin. That's how I see it. There was something we just uh, know internally it wasn't right about his behavior. Nevertheless, Jacob confers a blessing, uh, rather Isaac confers a blessing to Jacob. So let's let us look at what happens in Genesis thirty-one, one through three. We're just going to go through this as a narrative. <clears throat> you see, what what happened is uh, actually. You can, you, can, you can take the scripture down a moment. I want to give a little more background. What happened was, after this happened, Esau became very angry with Jacob. Angry enough to kill him, there was talk of murdering Jacob. Esau talked of murdering his brother. And out of fear, he ran away, and his mother sent him away to her family so that he could find a wife and make a living and establish a life there, far away from Esau's deep and desperate anger toward Jacob for not just talking him out of his birthright, but actually stealing, changing the will and stealing his inheritance. And so Esau is is murderous. So he goes to live with Laban and he crosses the river. He has nothing. He has only a staff. And the Lord peers to him and says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac, and I will give you this land. I will multiply your descendants. He is the heir of the blessing of Abraham. And I don't think Jacob even understands the meaning of that. All he's thinking about is, am I going to make a living? He says, if you will bless me, if you will go with me, if you'll give me food to eat and clothes to wear, I'll tithe to you. That's his, the extent of his understanding of what God wants to do in his life. Valuable, needful. Necessary, but it's only the tip of the iceberg of what God has in mind for Jacob. Not only that he would work for his uh, uncle Laban, not only that he would prosper, not only that he would have flocks, not only that he would have ch- uh, wives and children, not only that he would become two camps, a great multitude, but that he would be the heir. Of the blessing that was given to Abraham, that he would possess what God ordained for the whole human race, that he would be the means by which it came. I don't think he was seeing this for what it really was. And so here he he is, uh, uh, and we can pull up uh, Genesis 31 1 through 3. He's been working for Laban for 20 years. He's managed to get a lot of the flocks away from him. They become his property. As I say, he's made it. And Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he's gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And here's the key word. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. That is a command, that is a promise. God speaks to Jacob. Jacob, it's time for a transition. You've been here 20 years, go back where you came from. And I will be with you. It's not just a direction that he's to obey, it's a promise of protection and of his presence. He was called by God. And so we see in chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, we'll look through here. Jacob went on his way. His wives went with him. His cattle went with him. Everything he had went with him. And the angels of God met him. This is extraordinary. As he's traveling, the angels reveal themselves to him. There's angels here. I'll tell you why the angels reveal themselves. First of all, Jacob is walking in obedience. He's coming back to the land that's been promised to him. But more than that, he is going to need supernatural help in the next few days. And his eyes are open to see that the thing that he's heard from God is true. That the angels are present and he sees them. There is extraordinary grace extended to Jacob so that he can see into the supernatural realm... It is extraordinary grace for extraordinary circumstances. And I'll explain what that means. Jacob saw them. He said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Jacob's got it made. Jacob's two camps. Jacob's all kinds of livestock. Jacob's a big family. Jacob's got everything you could want. He is, he's an Arab nomad with, well, he's not an Arab. He's a Jewish nomad with a lot going for him. But Jacob's also got a really big problem that has never gone away. And that problem's name is Esau. See, he left Esau 20 years ago ready to murder him, ready to take revenge. And so he sends uh, his people ahead and he tells them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, my Lord Esau. That word is properly and carefully chosen chosen my lord esau thus says your servant jacob that term also is properly and carefully chosen your servant esau jacob i am not coming to invade i'm not coming to take over i'm coming in peace i'm coming with an olive branch I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. I have not come to to, um, exercise my dominion over you. I have not come to exercise the rights that my father and my mother have declared that I have over you. I have come as your servant. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob has it made. Or does he? Is there something that's just never really gone away? Is there something that's been in the background, it's sat in in the corner, it's a little tree, and it's just getting bigger, it's getting bigger, and it's getting bigger while he doesn't pay attention to it? Is it now not one person who has murder in his heart toward Jacob? Now it's 400 people because just as Jacob has prospered, so has Esau prospered. And he has become a great man. And he's become a leader of really a militia of some kind. And he's coming. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I can see why. I think probably you can either. You can too. Have you ever been greatly afraid and distressed? Anything ever gripped your heart? Anything in your past that was coming back to haunt you? Maybe to threaten you? Maybe to diminish you? Hopefully not. To kill you, but that was Jacob's concern. He was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. He started taking defensive measures. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, oh, God, my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. As we go to the next verse. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. With only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now i become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is one of two prayers that Jacob prays in this passage. We're talking about prayer. This is one of two prayers that he prays. And now he's looking at Esau and the unresolved problems of his past. And so he recalls his exodus. Lord, I remember your faithfulness. I came Away from Esau with nothing, and now I'm two, um, I'm I'm two camps. He sees his biggest fear. The question is: has Esau's rage grown from murder to massacre? He's not just concerned about his life, he's concerned about the life of his entire people. Look in the paper. Look what happens in some parts of the world today. These things happen. Look in the Bible. This is a legitimate fear that Jacob is embracing. And he faces his fears. He confronts his past with Esau. He is confronted by his past. And he prays very honestly, Lord, I am Jacob. I am the usurper. I am the twister. I am the one who's gotten away with it. I am not worthy but you are faithful. I had nothing, but you have given me everything. I have come here because you have called me to come here, and you have promised to do me good, but I see a huge obstacle. Please, oh God, deal with this issue in my life, this problem that is facing me, this relationship that's never been resolved, this Murderous spirit that has confronted me in the past and that I see again and wasn't planning on facing again. We see some paradoxes here in Jacob's situation. A paradox is two truths laid side by side by one another, two things that speak to competing interests or competing truths or competing ideas, and here they are. Jacob has a great promise. It's from God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do you good if you go back. The paradox is he is facing the biggest trial of his entire life, magnified 400 times. The paradox is he's gotten guidance from God to go in this direction. The competing truth is that his circumstances say... You are in big trouble. The paradox is Jacob's obeying God. The competing truth is there are big obstacles. The paradox is God has always been faithful, and Jacob remembers that, but he has big doubts about the situation he's in right now. Ever been there? Ever been there? Has God ever called you forth? Has God ever directed you? And it seems like, in the truest sense of the word, all hell has broken loose. And you had to hold on for all that you're worth to know that, yes, I am with you. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Yes, this is a crisis. Hold fast to me. You ever been there? Welcome to the club. That's Jacob's circumstance. That is the circumstance of many Christians throughout the ages. So we read further. We see that uh, Jacob has divided up his family into two camps. And it says that he was left alone. After he divided up the camps, he crossed the river and he was left alone. This is the second time of prayer that Jacob engages in. The first time was when he was afraid. Then he goes to work and divides up everyone and the families and puts them in separate camps to keep them safe. And now he's alone. And there's going to be a second prayer encounter that Jacob's going to have that's different from the first. The first was Honest acknowledgement of his need, of his dependence on God, and of his fear, and of his request for help. But now, something deeper is happened. This is the second time Jacob prays in this passage. Something much deeper is going on. And he's alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It's a lot of discussion among commentators and rabbis. Who is this? man When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was point was put out of joint as he wrestled with him Now I have to believe that whoever this was that was wrestling with Jacob really would not have had any real trouble winning the wrestling match if he could just touch Jacob And put his thigh out of joint. This wasn't for the sake of the man that Jacob was wrestling with. The supernatural being we will come to see. That Jacob was wrestling. This was for Jacob's sake. That this wrestling match took place. I want to tell you brothers and sisters. God may bring you into a place where you have to wrestle. With some things. It's. It's not a punishment, it's for your benefit. It's to bring out something transformative and transforming for your life. So here he is. His socket is touched, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then Jacob said, Let me go. Or rather, the man said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then it goes on further. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That's where the, the name Israel implies, striving with God. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. This tells us something about the man that Jacob is wrestling with. Something supernatural about this individual. perhaps Perhaps even divine. He says, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. What's going on here? What is this wrestling match all about? I think it's about Jacob. It's about who Jacob is. What Jacob is. Who Jacob is called to be. And what he's intended to become. Is he living a lie? Is he living off stolen blessings? See, somebody who knows how to cut corners and manipulate and make things happen? You know, I have to tell you quite honestly, I am amazed sometimes. My experience over the years in ministry. I hope you won't consider this to be judgmental, but... Perhaps it will speak to you. I have seen over the years those who manipulate, those who speak evangelistically. That is not entirely honestly about their work, about their ministry. I've seen people who cut corners do amazing things. Have you seen the same thing? It's a rhetorical question you don't need to answer. And you scratch your head. How, how does this happen? God, are you looking? Did, did, did you see that? I read an article, really funny one recently, called When Hot Church Comes to Town. It's a great article. <clears throat> a lightning struck a tree in front of the church, and the guy got, uh, the pastor of Hot Church got his picture in the paper with the, Lightning hitting the tree and claiming that the devil was attacking his ministry and somehow got it in the newspaper. And the guy who wrote the article says, God, they even get lightning. Then <laughs> he goes on to say some of the problems that developed. You live uprightly, you do the right thing, and you don't see quite the same results. And you say, Where is God? Well, here is the truth of the matter, friends. All of us have an element of Jacob in our character. All of us have an element of that which is not entirely sanctified. You see, sanctification is a process. And I think for a long time, God lets the string Roll out for a long time. He lets us use our own methods. He lets us use our carnal ways. He lets us use our own strength, our intelligence, our abilities, our dishonesties and disservices. But one day, one day, we're alone with God. And he puts his finger on that thing. It's a blessing when he does it. It's a blessing. You know why? Because it's part of the process of sanctification. You see, when Jesus died for us and we believed him, we were justified. Just as if we had never sinned. He gave us his spirit to sanctify us. Justification is a legal standing. Sanctification is a process. And we are renewed continually by the spirit of our mind. And we're embracing the cross. We're dying daily to ourselves. And God, by his spirit, is renewing us and transforming us. And if there is something in our life that we are holding on to that dishonors him or makes the blessing that we obtain somehow tainted, the time will come and he will address it. And we will be in a wrestling match. And thank God if he touches your hip. And you can no longer in your own strength accomplish what God would have you to accomplish. But not as Jacob, not as the twister, but as Israel, one who strives with God. He is a new and different man when he comes out of that wrestling match. So what is the wrestling match over? It's this question. What's your name? What's your name? Jacob, the supplanter, twister. Not anymore. I've given you a new name. It's Israel, a prince with God. You're not defined by that dishonesty, by that manipulation, by that need to justify yourself, to look good in front of your friends, to exalt yourself, or whatever issue it is that you wrestle with. You're a prince with God. That's your destiny. That's who you're created to be. And that's why I've come to you. Because up until this time, in some way, Jacob could be saying he's living a lie. You know, I read an article recently. Um, Some man named uh, Roger Jones was writing. He said, you know what the number one fear, he said, of 116 executives that I surveyed, uh, that is, CEOs of big companies, their number one fear is that they will found out, be found out to be an imposter who actually lacks the level of incompetence required for their position. It was published in Harvard Business Review and it's called the imposter syndrome. In other words, when people succeed, when they make progress, when they get somewhere, in the back of their mind, say, you know what? That's not really who I am. That's what happened to Jacob. In fact, you would be surprised how many people who have become very significant public figures, known figures, not only suffer from the imposter syndrome, but are imposters. There's a great story Nicky Gumbel tells in the Alpha Course. He says, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, once played a practical joke Knowing that even the most respectable people have things they are embarrassed and ashamed about, he sent a telegram to 12 highly respectable and respected men in England. All it said on the telegram was this, Flee at once, all is discovered. Within 24 hours, every single one of them left the country. (laughs) Now that's an imposter syndrome. You know, when you gave your heart to Christ, you probably had family members. Oh, now he's all holy. He's a big partier. He wasn't truthful. He fill in the blank. He was dishonest. Now he's all holy. You come into your place of service in the kingdom. Oh, now he's all holy. She's all holy. We are all in need of an encounter with the angel. We're all in need of an encounter that transforms us from Jacob, a deceiver, to a prince with God. We don't obtain that. We don't obtain that through prayer. You may miss mistake. What I'm saying we obtain that through the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ he gives us a new identity he gives us a new name and it is received by grace through faith that is the justification but I also believe there is a sanctification that takes place And we are not fully completed. We are not as we are intended to be. And we walk through this life and sometimes we're taking shortcuts and we don't really understand even what it is that we're doing. But then God brings that thing back and he shows it to us. And he says, what's your name? Jacob was defined by a fear of something that happened 20 years earlier. And it was only at the place of transforming prayer that that thing lost its grip on his life. The outcome was utter and total transformation. His relationship with God, his relationship with himself, and his relationship with his brother, his very identity was changed, his name was changed to Israel it says immediately after this that Jacob lifted up his eyes and sure enough here comes Esau with his 400 men it says he went on before his children and his goods and he bowed himself to the ground seven times and he came to his brother it says verse 4, 33 verse 4 Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? What is your fear? I think God wants to bring you into a place of personal encounter with him. I think he wants to deliver you from that thing. I think he wants his power to be at work so that you will know the meaning of the transformation of your soul, not from a deceiver, but into a prince, a child of God. It is through faith, but in the mystery of the spirit, there is also a groaning that takes place. What's your biggest fear, your biggest obstacle? What are you called to own up to? What carnal method of getting by is God touching in your life? Are you willing to face him alone? Are you willing to wrestle with this until God gives you a clear answer? Jesus himself faced these things. We see it in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And then Luke twenty-two forty-one 41 to 46. Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. 1 and 2. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our encounter with God transforms. It is intended to transform who we are. And it's not just a one-time thing at salvation. It is an ongoing thing that is part of the process of sanctification. You may have a wrestling match with God in your future. I encourage you to engage. Let us pray. Lord, I know there are people in this congregation who are wrestling with something really serious. Something's confronting them, confronting us. I believe you're calling us into a personal encounter, calling us to wrestle with you. It may even influence who we really are, deep down and it is the instrument by which you want to write your law in our hearts and fulfill your new covenant if you're here this morning and we can just kind of have our heads bowed and eyes closed if you're here this morning and you would say you know I, I need to wrestle with God about some things or something something that God is putting his finger on. And I'm willing to offer myself that I might encounter him. This is not the encounter, but you're saying, Lord, I'm willing to wrestle this out. That's you, wherever you are, I just want you to stand on your feet as the rest of us are continuing an attitude of prayer. Anywhere in this uh, congregation... Please feel free to stand to your feet. If you are ready to wrestle with the Lord, I'm not calling you forward. It's just to stand to pray over you. Thank you, Lord. There may be others. Don't be afraid or ashamed. Lord, there's something to wrestle with, something that's right in front of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we are asking you for an encounter. With your presence this week, this month, we are praying that we can wrestle through into a place of complete victory. Yes, we wrestle with the spiritual forces of uh, the angelic realm, but we also wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I pray, Lord, that as we enter into wrestling matches this week, we will find ourselves in a place of victory and blessing. Transformation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to ask you all to stand. I'll ask you to come and we're going to sing as we close.